Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Guardian. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Zero. What can we expect from the tech giants in 2019? Well, if Mark Zuckerberg has his way, then Facebook will be heading to space. First stage into the full power, we good. In July 2018, Facebook confirmed reports that it plans to launch an internet satellite called Athena into low Earth orbit early next year. According to an application filed with the Federal Communications Commission, the goal is efficiently providing broadband access to unserved and underserved areas throughout the world. First stage propellant utilization is active. But Facebook is a little late to the game. Early in November 2018, the FCC approved SpaceX's request to launch 7,518 satellites into orbit. SpaceX, the private American space technology company, now has permission to launch nearly 12,000 of these craft as part of a satellite constellation called Starlink. The two companies have ended up in a sort of 21st century space race. Now, I love space. I spent Monday night with a bunch of physicists monitoring NASA's InSight lander as it touched down on Mars. And trying to make the internet accessible to every person in the world is an admirable goal. But right now, nearly 99% of transoceanic data traffic travels through cables under the sea. So why are tech tycoons ignoring this fiber optic system on the sea floor and spending billions sending satellites into space instead? Because satellites are sexy. You can launch a satellite into space. It's something that you can see. The idea of like it broadcasting and you connecting to something that's uh, in outer space is exciting. Laying a cable on the ocean floor just doesn't have the same appeal. And what might inspire someone to use these less sexy undersea cables as the central focus in a work of art? It's strange that if you would go somewhere specifically to sort of contemplate connectedness and then you land in these beaches, which are by design remote, it's, it sets up this sort of dichotomy that I, I fell in love with really early on in its pilgrimages to the internet, that like, they don't lay cables at places where there's a lot of people or a lot of fishing boats or a lot of anchors, and so you always end up in these really remote places. Maybe you're the only person on the beach, and it just seems kind of appropriate. I'm Jordan Erica Weber, and this week we're diving down among the sharks and shipwrecks to understand the world of undersea cables and why we should be giving them more of our attention. 
This is Chips With Everything. Hi, Nicole. Hi. Hi, how's it going? This is Jordan. Hold on a sec. Yes, now I've got the sound set up. Okay, cool. How are you doing? Nicole Staroselsky is an associate professor of media, culture and communication at New York University. She is also one of only a small group of experts on the topic of undersea cables and wrote one of the first books on the subject. So the book is called The Undersea Network and it traces the history and culture of the cable system from the 19th century telegraph systems through the telephone systems in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and 80s through the contemporary fiber optic systems. So that way we could finally understand that cable systems are what carry our internet traffic um, instead of thinking of it as immaterial or going through a cloud. It's kind of ironic, given that most of the internet traffic goes under the sea, that we talk about the internet in terms of phrases like wireless and the cloud, right? It is. And I think that that is something that goes all the way back to radio communications and even before the idea that to communicate is to traverse distance without being bound to the ground or bound to transportation or to earthly things. The image of the internet traveling through fiber optic cables from one side of the world to the other might seem modern, but the concept goes back to the invention of the telegraph in the 19th century. There's been a lot of attention on the first transatlantic cables, for example, trials and attempts, and finally laid in the 1860s. But what happened is then after that is that telegraph cables were basically laid all over the world. A lot of these were laid by the British as part of uh, what was called the All Red Line. And so this was the, the colonial network to link England to all of her colonies. And a lot of the cable routes continue to follow some of these old telegraph lines. So for people listening, can you, can you help us to imagine what these cables actually look like? I mean, given that they're going under the sea, I assume they need to be very sturdy. So are they massive? They're about the same as your garden hose in your backyard, literally. They can't be too big because you have to think, all right, so all the cable gets packed onto a ship in these massive containers, and then it spools out the back. You can't have something that's really, really heavy that will drop really quickly to the seafloor and will break. So they're actually pretty lightweight and flexible. When they come ashore, they sometimes get put often actually in conduits um, or are buried. So if you were to you know, walk along the beach and you saw an undersea cable, it would probably be if you did see it in a conduit and marked, you wouldn't see this garden hose. Um, that's usually only in the deep sea. Who owns all of these cables then? Are they owned by governments or like organizations? Could you own one as an individual? Could I buy one if I wanted to have really good communication with a friend on the other side of the world? Many people own undersea cables, but primarily it's telecom companies or it's an individual organization, a company that has is basically a startup. If you think of the typical model of a startup, the other way is uh, a consortium or a club system. And today you also have companies like Google and Facebook getting into the cable game. At the start of the show, we mentioned the space race between companies like Facebook and SpaceX, which are trying to spread satellites around low Earth orbit to give more people across the world access to the internet. But in Nicole's view, satellites won't replace fiber optic cables anytime soon. Satellite communication is much slower than fiber optic 
communication, in part because all of those signals have to go up through clouds, through the atmosphere, and bounce off of satellites and then come back down, and there's all this potential interference. Fiber optic communication goes the speed of light down a piece of glass, and it's always more effective and efficient and typically less costly than communicating through satellite. What kind of information goes through these cables? Everything on the internet social media communications, all of your email, any communications with any websites, telephone calls, some television transmissions that aren't broadcast through satellites, everything. As we mentioned earlier, about 99% of transoceanic data traffic travels through undersea cables. So you might imagine that the seafloor is covered. Well, there are hundreds of cables. It's actually very few cables and the ocean is huge and these are each a garden hose. So these hundreds of cable systems are actually far and few between, and they tend to be clustered in certain routes. So the ocean is not cluttered, although there are many old cable systems that still remain on the seabed. Although most people seem totally unaware of the importance of these cables, military officials have raised concerns that they might become targets in geopolitical sabotage. In June 2018, the U.S. Treasury Department alleged that Russia had been active in tracking undersea communications cables. Russia hasn't confirmed whether they are involved in this kind of activity, and nothing has been proven. But the notion raises the question of just how easy it would be for people to tap into the data carried through these cables under the sea. In terms of the tapping, well, it's not impossible. A submarine could go down, not a diver tap the uh, line and jump the power. But it would be extraordinarily difficult. I mean, it's difficult to do that in water period. It would be extraordinarily difficult to do that in the ocean floor. It would be ridiculously expensive. And any signal tap will reduce the transmitted power between these two, any two locations. So it would be perceptible by the cable companies. Nicole is skeptical about the possibility of using these cables for cyber warfare but the cables can be damaged. It's just more likely to be an accident. It's really easy to sever a cable. You can just drop an anchor on it, or you can pull it up with a grapnel. Um, This is something that happens all over the world all the time inadvertently, because there are boaters and uh, fishermen and other users of the sea that accidentally catch cables and cut them. So the cable companies are always going and repairing cables. So they're quite vulnerable. But they're also being repaired quite quickly. And in places like the United States or in Europe, you typically don't notice this. Um, In places where there's only a single cable, if that cable gets cut, the country's internet goes out. But what about the cables themselves causing damage? So do they negatively impact the kind of natural habitats that they're laid in? Or do they maybe even more broadly damage the environment in some way? No, actually, cables do not damage the environment in any substantive way. Cables have a really low environmental cost, if you will. They get laid on the seafloor. They stay there usually for decades without being pulled up. So there's minimal effects of this single garden hose. And in fact, in some places you have cable protection zones, which means that there's no fishing allowed right above the cable which means that actually that could allow some habitat regeneration because there aren't people trawling the seafloor right above those cables.
the people at SpaceX and Facebook are determined to send more satellites into low Earth orbit. So will we one day leave the fish alone and really send the cloud into the sky? The cloud is never going to be in the cloud, ever, at all. It's always going to be underwater. What they really do is they do try to connect to the entire globe or to many of the places that don't have cabled connections. It's incredibly difficult to lay cables in a lot of environments. Um, and it's also difficult to extend cables everywhere because they're costly projects. So it would, in that case, be feasible and like economically viable to connect via satellite. But mostly those satellite projects are meant not to replace cables, but to connect all the users that aren't on cables. Um, cables can't ever be a universal or sort of democratic medium because they're a point-to-point -point system of communication. As our global communication infrastructure changes, so too do our feelings about it. After the break, we'll be looking at how these fiber-optic undersea cables are inspiring one artist to redefine his relationship with the internet. I think it's made me um, feel more comfortable with saying goodbye to what I thought the internet was. We'll be right back. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Today in Focus is a new Guardian podcast that brings you closer to our journalism by getting behind the news every weekday. You'll join me, Anushka Astana, talking to people at the centre of the big stories impacting our world. We'll use personal perspectives and expert analysis to put you at the heart of what matters. Listen to Today in Focus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. Welcome back to Tips With Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. This week, we're looking at the elusive world of undersea cables. Before the break, Nicole Staroselsky told us why internet satellites will never replace the network of fiber-optic cables along the sea floor. I'm here because I'm taking part in a project that's uh, supported by Art Angel called Redlines, and that kind of was released last month, but uh, yesterday I released a new series of footage into that network that I shot in the Cornwall area. Evan Roth is an artist whose latest work focuses heavily on the fiber optic cables that carry our data across the ocean. So I sort of think about Redlines as a mix that sits somewhere between net art and kind of romance period landscape painting in like a simple way of saying it. Mm -hmm. From a viewer's standpoint, what they're seeing is infrared video 
And that video is served from um, the countries in which it was shot. So for example, like if you're looking at this horizon line that's in Hong Kong, that video file is sitting on a server in Hong Kong. So the viewer is sort of connecting these two things. So it's activating this pathway that's going under sea and under land. And so Redlines is essentially a ring of all these and it'll just bounce. So you'll, you'll be seeing Hong Kong for 18 minutes and then you're gonna be seeing Sydney for 18 minutes and Cape Town. And it's following a lot of the locations of this all red line from the original sort of telegraph network. Uh, and the whole sequence takes about 14 hours to complete. So let's unpack red lines a bit more. Where exactly did the idea come from and what kind of experience did you want people to have? What did you want them to take away from it? So the idea came from <laughs> bitter disappointment, I would say. <laughs> like I think I, I kind of stepped away from an architecture career early on because I wanted to invest in the internet. Like I felt like kind of why am I going to be dealing in built materials when there's this other medium that's the creative decisions I'd be making were totally divorced from the dollar signs it would take to produce them. And I just was, yeah, I was super influenced by what was happening with peer-to-peer networks at the time. But then kind of like childhood friends that grow in different directions, the web turned into this totally different thing. And it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily just tied to the NSA GCHQ spying scandal, but that was kind of one moment. And the Facebook IPO was a moment. And you just kind of saw the internet condensing into fewer and fewer servers and the monetization and the spying. And it just got to be, I was really questioning whether I wanted to have it as the internet be such a big part of my artistic practice. And so this is me trying to seek a way to find sort of a little bit of optimism or a little bit of way of trying to navigate through the web and still exist and make net art um, while still being sort of critical about where it is and where it's headed. Evan spent several years traveling to more than 60 different places in eight countries around the world to film the landscapes where cables emerge from the sea. I mean, the experience of filming is is really the work for me. Like in the beginning, I just thought there would be something interesting about seeing the Internet physically as a kind of way to like take some sort of agency back from from the disempowering effect I'd felt from moments online. And that kind of happened to one degree. But like even on the first trip, it became clear that what I was more interested in than seeing the cable was just kind of the effect of visiting these strange they're not even strange. They're just, it, it's strange that if you would go somewhere specifically to sort of contemplate connectedness and then you land in these beaches, which are by design remote, it's, it sets up this sort of dichotomy that I, I fell in love with really early on. And it's kind of, I don't know, these pilgrimages to the internet that like, they don't lay cables at places where there's a lot of people or a lot of fishing boats or a lot of anchors. And so you always end up in these really remote places. Maybe you're the only person on the beach and it just seems kind of appropriate. So if someone listening to this wants to check this out for themselves, how would you go about doing that? Essentially, the piece is a website. You'll just enter in p2p.redlines.network into almost any internet-connected device. And once it's running, like all of the sort of peer-to-peer aspect of the project happens behind. So you don't have to like do much else. You just live with it. Find a way that sort of fits into your life. It's not like just putting a nail on the wall and hanging a picture. Like You kind of have to develop a habit with it the same way you would with like I don't know, your favorite podcast or your favorite radio program or music you might listen to. Like you have these habits that are not pushed upon you with notifications that you you turn on the radio in the morning, you make coffee. Like I think really getting into this piece is sort of a developing a, a new habit with your smartphone, like a different kind of habit. Would you mind if I checked it out now? Yeah. Okay. So what I'm looking at right now is kind of, I can't, I can't even tell. It looks like maybe 
dunes or uh this so this is las toninas argentina okay if you go to the wiki page for las toninas the only two things it mentions are the fact that there's a fiber optic cable landing there and that hedge maze oh it's a hedge maze yeah i did wonder what i was looking at okay and it's kind of and there are trees in the background and i can see the sky um and it's it's kind of it's all red is that is that a that's a filter or it's shot with an infrared camera which is like yeah, it's meant to reference the fact that it's it's shot in the same frequency range that the internet modulates at. So that's kind of why you're seeing this in infrared. Some of the images have animals in them, right? And then you can see them moving. And people and airplanes and drones. It's like one one thing I found with a project that I've heard from people doing nature photography is that like a lot of us have the experience of going into nature and hikes and experiencing it that way. But going into nature and being still to me was really interesting because you notice that things enter the frame. You don't have to seek them out. Um, but these things that you kind of have to hold still to even notice are happening. And what's the goal for the viewer of Red Lines? What do you hope that they experience? The piece is mimicking what I felt when I was filming, which was like I went through my own sort of disappointment in myself of like being in these idyllic landscapes and then unable to sort of not check email after 30 seconds or not check that Instagram notification I heard go off in my pocket. And so this work is meant to give that experience to anybody who might be wrestling with phone addiction, which I think is almost all of us at this point, and provide a sort of... A way that isn't stepping away from the net. It's still artwork that's flowing through the net, but it's not this infinite scroll of one-second interactions with media. It's a very slow interaction. And when you're viewing the piece, you're going to be hearing those notifications go off as another part of the work. And so that decision that the viewer has to make, whether to close the art piece in order to check their email or to check their Instagram, is meant to be sort of part of the viewing experience. So when we talked about your kind of inspiration for this work, you said you'd become kind of disappointed, disillusioned with the internet. Has this helped you to regain your love for the internet or is it a kind of final (laughs) goodbye before you move on? I think it's made me um, feel more comfortable with saying goodbye to what I thought the internet was. What the idea I came around to was that it wasn't necessarily the internet I was so infatuated with. It was being part of a telecommunications system in its sort of infancy and adolescence period. And that process is repeatable. Like it happened with radio, it happened with TV. They both had these moments of sort of strange experimentation before they were sort of monetized and centralized. And so, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like that time period is probably shrinking, like the amount of time you get to play in a network before it totally gets uh, turned into something else. But I think it's going to happen again, and I think it'll be a good time for artists when it does. That's all for this week. My thanks to Nicole Staroselsky and Evan Roth for joining me on the show. There'll be a link to Nicole's book, The Undersea Network, and Evan Roth's project, Red Lines, on this week's episode description on The Guardian website. Now... For anyone getting ready for Christmas, the North American Aerospace Defense Command will switch on its official Santa Tracker tomorrow, December 1st. Producer Danielle and I will be following it day by day all the way to the 25th, and our very special Christmas episode will feature the man in charge of tracking Santa. He'll tell us how NORAD's own satellite systems and jet fighters work 24 hours a day to track Father Christmas. If you spot him, make sure to let us know by sending an email to chipspodcast at theguardian.com. That's all for this week. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.